Hi, everyone, and welcome to SEDSCast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me as co-host is Chad Sarudi. Our guest today is Sean DeMello, who is the Vice President of Launch at Rocket Lab. Sean, how are you doing today? Very good, thanks, and thanks for having me on board. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, we are too. We were just talking before we started recording. This is the first time where the guest is on a different day. So Sean's coming from <laughs> New Zealand, and for him it is March 10th, but for us it's March 9th. And so... Oh, you just dated the podcast. What are you doing? Yeah, it's all right. It's coming out in a couple of weeks, but hopefully people don't notice. Yeah, this is about a week after Rocket Lab announced that they're going public through SPAC and Neutron. So we'll talk about all that stuff and also talk a lot about Sean's current position and all the stuff going on with Electron, which is very exciting. So I guess to get into it, Sean, can you start by just giving us some background on who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I've... Uh basically from Australia and uh, joined Rocket Lab about seven years ago now. Um, my role as the Vice President of Launch, I ultimately responsible for delivering our global launch capability, um, and that is really delivering safe, frequent, and reliable launch. Um, what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis, um, really directing the end-to-end -end, um, execution of our launch ops and mission ops, uh, development and operation of our launch sites across the globe, um, and then also working through our safety assurance uh, licensing and, and regularly compliance programs. Um, again, ultimately to make sure that um, electrons leave the pad on time and go exactly where they're designed for. Yeah, and you've done a good job of that today. I think that's one thing that stands out from Rocket Lab is the reliability right from the get-go. So before we talk about Electron and Rocket Lab, I think one other question we usually like to ask is what got you interested in space in the first place? Was it something where you knew you always wanted to go into space or is that kind of a passion that came around over time? Yeah, great question. I'd probably say it's a, it's a combination of both. I've been obsessed with things that fly from, from a very young age. Uh, but again, fundamentally, it's really hard to not be drawn to its things that travel fast and make a lot of noise. Um, and uh, the launch industry, I think, encapsulates that in many ways. Um, and the other aspect, I think, of, of space and the launch business as a whole is just the challenge. Uh, it's, it's a significant engineering challenge where you've got to pack a whole lot of energy into systems with often very conflicting, contradicting requirements um, that ultimately delivers this very fragile object um, perfectly into orbit. And that, that in itself is, I think, I find quite fascinating. Um, and, and just, you know, always working with a very tight margin between success and failure and being on the right side of that success and failure curve is also incredibly gratifying. Um, so that's what got me into space. It's just overall the, the challenge. It's a very, very interesting thing to solve. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, I always love talking about space with people and hearing like how they got into it because there's always like a couple different answers people have, but it's always just space is awesome and like it's great. And there's so many cool things that people are doing and it's exciting. Yeah, I love it. How did you get involved with Rocket Lab specifically? Yeah, uh, I mean, I just, I reached out um, in the early days. Um, this was before the Electron program was actually made made public or, or um, brought out to the world. Um, being from Australia, I you know graduated, was working at an early job there um, for a few months. And I saw, and I heard of Rocket Lab through conferences at the time. Um, back then, uh, we, or Rocket Lab back then, were just focused on sounding rockets. And that's what I thought uh, might be the opportunity Little did I know that we were chasing uh, more of an orbital venture um, very hmm. quickly after. Um, but yeah, the, the, the interest there was in the region and in this specific region here, there's not many opportunities in space. It's now growing um, with the various uh, capabilities, both coming out of Australia and New Zealand. But uh, at the time, 
the opportunities were scarce and Rocket Lab was the only, uh, I guess, shop around that was doing interesting work that caught my attention. And I just reached out um, and things kind of escalated from there. That's awesome. I was wondering, I've always wondered about that. So Australia and New Zealand aren't some, like it's not an area with a huge history of space launch. And then Electron was like able to become very, very successful from New Zealand. What from a political sense or just from a cultural sense allowed like that area of the world to become such a hub for Rocket Lab? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, and it's one that I also um, try and figure out and wonder what was the secret sauce that made this all work. Um, but, you know, uh, Rocket Lab itself, um, founded by Peter Beck and, and Pete's got an incredible history of, of engineering and coming up with a very ingenious um, solution. So um, there's a, there's a, there's just heritage of innovation and, and getting things done here um, that I think um, came to fruition um, with, with a vehicle like Electron uh, with some of the early design and research and development. Um, so I think putting the history and legacy aside, uh, which like you pointed out, you know, there, there isn't a rich history of launch vehicles coming out of um, New Zealand specifically, Australia has had some in the past. Um, there's just a really rich ingenuity here um, and there's creativity and um, there's a lot of sort of free thinking and uh, the ability to get stuff done very quickly. And I think if you put all those things together, um, building a rocket becomes possible and achievable and now proven. Yeah, sure. And I mean, Electron really just like keeps pushing and pushing the bounds, like starting off with like electrically fed turbo pumps and like other things in the rocket. And then now you've started trying to go into the reusability for Electron, which there's a whole history behind Rocket Lab and reusability. You can look it up. Peter Beck had to eat his hat over it and whatnot. Yeah. But why did Electron, like what kind of prompted that change in the first place? And what benefits are there for Electron going reusable? Yeah, I think, yeah, as you said, um, you know, we've, we've been um, quoted in the past for not, or at least going away from reusability. Um, but what it, it really came down to um, along our journey of trying to scale Electron as a product uh, from a launch frequency standpoint was that reusability was a path to actually having more vehicles in the fleet to then launch more frequently. Um, and obviously there are some cost savings that come with it, which is great. Um, but the, the biggest thing was to enable a higher launch frequency. Um, and instead of having to throw away the stage every single time, uh, being able to bring that back, um, you know, uh, top up the batteries again and fly is, is the goal here. And that instantly, again, doubles or triples our, our cadence um, from a production and manufacturability standpoint. So that's what uh, became uh, quite an attractive prospect when we realized that uh, that was a potential outcome. And then the R&D that's gone into it and the, the recent success we've had with the recovering stage in November last year um, has almost um, proven that point a little further in the fact that we, you know, we got hardware back in, in really good condition in some cases. Um, and that, again, now all of a sudden uh, we've got two vehicles sitting there um, instead of one. And if, if we can expand on that, it might be two or three or multiple times of use, um, which, which again, um, assists with, with increasing a launch frequency. So that's really why um, one of the key reasons where we're chasing reusability is just being able to up the frequency. And then our users and our customers eventually will benefit from costs coming down as a function of that. Sure. Yeah. And I also realized for some of our listeners who might not know, uh, Sean, can you explain how Rocket Lab is trying to reuse the rocket? Because it's different from what SpaceX and Falcon 9 do. 
Yeah, that's right. I think um, one of the, the key differences here is we're relying on um, technologies like shoots and decelerators on the way back down to slow electron down. Uh, and, and I think maybe where it's most unique is that uh, electrons are size that we can actually pick up with an airborne asset like a helicopter. So we don't have to deal with uh, the stage coming back down and splashing onto uh, the ocean, um, or neither do we have to necessarily have a um, propulsive reentry and landing. Um, so the current evolution of our, of our thinking and our operations have, have led us to look at mid-air capture. Um, and again, this is a strong function of its size. Um, it's not a very big launch vehicle that um, um, using something like a helicopter pushes out of the on, you know, performance envelope. Uh, we can just about catch it. So uh, it offers us some, some more creative and unique solutions um, that could otherwise not be realized with much bigger systems. Yeah. So when I first heard of the helicopter idea, I was skeptical. I'm guessing whoever first pitched it probably had a, a mixed response, but it is interesting that you have an open enough mindset that you're able to actually look at it and pull it off. Do you remember like how it first came to be an idea and like the first feasibility study? Like how did you figure out that this might work? I mean, it definitely helps that Peter is quite obsessed with helicopters. So um, <laughs> I can I can say a lot of that stems back to his thinking about the the problem and trying to solve it. Um, but there there were many things considered. You know, we we considered quite a few options um, options as as wide as even landing this uh, into the ocean and then it self-propelling its way back across the ocean um, to to uh, mainland of New Zealand. So nothing was off the table and nothing is ever off the table when we when we start new projects here. Um, and that kind of goes back to the creativity and, and the free thinking that goes into a lot of our a lot of our solutions that we put forward. Um, and yeah, that's maybe the genesis of how we started uh, was that nothing was off the table. And when we looked at uh, what a helicopter could do in terms of salvaging um, the stage one, it, it looked like a solution that could close and one that was worth pursuing. Can you walk us through you started launching in New Zealand, why you're expanding Electron's base of operations and what that's going to look like in the coming years? Yeah. So, um, you know, we started launching in New Zealand um, uh, mainly because New Zealand's got an unmatched capability for availability and also access to a number of orbits. Um, to give you, you know, a sense of scale, uh, what we can get from our launch site in Mahia, Launch Complex 1, uh, is effectively combining the capability from Cape Canaveral and Vandenberg. So the East Coast and West Coast of the United States you can get from one site because you can fly south and fly east. So largely speaking, geography is uh, a big um, influence as to why we ended up uh, in New Zealand. Uh, the other aspects of, of being here as well, um, we've got low, low marine traffic, low air traffic. So when we do have to shut down certain parts of the airspace, which is quite small, um, we have long durations of time that we, we effectively affect next to no one um, around the areas that we're at. Um, and, you know, we're in close coordination with our local communities um, around Mahia as well to make sure our impacts are as minimal as possible. So we, we find ourselves in a position at Launch Complex 1 where not only do we run the range, so we have our own um, schedules that we follow. We pick our own T0s. There's no one else we're coordinating with. It's kind of like having your own private airstrip, right? Um, you're not checking in with air traffic control every now and then for when you can get permission to take off and coordinate with with other um, carriers, so to speak. So the ultimate flexibility is is something um, we need. It's something we need to deliver um, high frequency launch. Um, and that's really how Launch Complex 1 was selected. It, it met all the criteria for delivering high frequency launch, doing things on our own terms uh, and doing things quickly. Um, 
and that's where we started. Um, that's it, Launch Complex One will continue to be our high frequency launch site. Um, it is the place that was built for volume uh, and getting volume to orbit. Uh, we have since expanded. Uh, we have a launch site at, uh, in the United States on the Eastern shore uh, at Wallops Flight Facility. And that's really tailored for more um, US government type missions, um, higher security classifications, where you've got payloads that need to stay in country, for example. Um, that's that's what Launch Complex 2 is tailored for. It's got high secure um, facilities on site that we can leverage. It's got a lot of fueling capabilities um, for more advanced spacecraft that we can leverage as, uh, too as part of the NASA Wallops Flight Facility. So that's where Launch Complex 2 sits and, and its importance and significance in, in the broader scope of things. Uh, and between the two sites, you know, we have um, we have uh, an offering to the market that, that kind of ticks all the boxes. Uh, which is why we've sort of diversified beyond um, um, launching just from Mahia or New Zealand for that matter. Yeah. Have you, is there any talk about other space companies going to New Zealand and setting up like a launch complex over there? Because it does seem like there's a lot of extremely enticing benefits, especially for like some of the larger space companies that will be able to actually meet that uh, increased like flexibility and probably or increased frequency of launch rather. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And, and look, we, we hear of interest um, all the time. Um, I think one of the key things is we have, uh, we as in Rocket Lab have pretty significant facilities already established here. So any other company wanting to come will need to think about this logistics of moving your launch vehicle that's assembled in the United States or wherever in the world uh, to be bought to New Zealand. So there are some challenges there that need to be addressed. Um, and then the, with larger launch vehicles too, um, you know, uh, I, you ideally would be integrating and manufacturing these vehicles close to your launch site. So for a lot of the larger companies that are established across the globe, uh, one thing they're going to have to figure out is bringing a vehicle that size and that magnitude um, over as well, which will have its own challenges. Um, but yeah, there, there's interest, um, I think, um, but we've not seen anything really come to fruition um, on that front. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense because you are in like that kind of unique niche well not niche but like position where you have like a smaller reusable vehicle and have the facilities and the flexibility to kind of set it up there cool uh this is probably a question you get too often but rocket lab is basically like the only vc funded company to actually make it to orbit regularly aside from you know the position uh in terms of physical location what do you think it is that sets rocket lab apart from all these other, you know, there's a hundred and something launch companies reported. Yeah. What what makes you guys different? Why, especially at the start, were you able to get to launch so quickly? Yeah, um, great, great question. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's maybe getting more and more relevant as we see more and more players come into the industry and more and more players look at also um, expanding and, and also, you know, going public and so on. Um, but I think, I think, you know, uh, essentially we've, we've always delivered on what we say we would deliver. Um, you know, we said we were going to solve small launch and we've done it. Um, we uh, stood up a full satellite division. We've got spacecraft in orbit right now as we speak. Um, so I think our track record really kind of speaks for itself. I don't know if I need to say much more. Um, we've just got a proven track record. And um, and that, that should build confidence um, in everything we do in the future as well. Um, and the fact that um, we will go deliver what we say we will plan on delivering. Yeah, and I mean, that's... Like VCs see it and like the general public sees it too. I mean, it always feels like it's when you're talking about space companies, there's 
kind of like the lesser known startups that are trying to get there. And then it is Rocket Lab and SpaceX. And SpaceX gets a lot of like the main public attention, but specifically within the space realm, it's like your company and SpaceX are the two regularly going to orbit as like primary space companies that have like proven that they can do it time and time again and are getting more creative and more flexible and like actually reducing that cost to orbit and everything. So it's definitely... It's no surprise why Rocket Lab is like so well funded by VCs because like even to the general public, it's pretty obvious to see how you guys have set yourself apart from the rest of the group. Yeah, I saw that comparison in the the investor pitch deck, which came out kind of with that announcement, which by the way is one of my, I think, yeah, definitely my favorite slide deck of this year since we're early in the year, but it was a really great summary of the company and how the SPAC stuff's going to work. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And yeah, it's, it's you and SpaceX that do it regularly. One of the slides on that was about future missions to other planets. And it had, you know, Moon, which is coming up with Capstone, and then it had Venus and Mars on there. So I'm curious to hear, A, if that's kind of something within the realm of what you're doing since this launch and kind of what you're looking to do with the Venus and Mars launches. Yeah, good questions. Um, yeah, I mean, right now our, our, our organization's focused on on getting Capstone the mission for NASA um, delivered. Uh, there's a lot of new technology that we're pretty excited about developing there. Um, and a lot of that, you know, is is really surreal to see. Sometimes you're walking around the shop floor and you see hardware that's destined for the moon, which is, um, yeah, quite a, quite a, quite a moment. Um, but we, we have a lot of focus on that right now. And what that technology development program um, is creating is a lot of technology that we would then use for other interplanetary missions. Um, so we are working on, on you know, missions out to Mars and also missions uh, to Venus um, in the coming years. Um, again, leveraging a lot of these building blocks that we are you know, creating right now to get to the moon and getting to a lunar orbit. Um, so that's sort of the, the path there is that we've, uh, the, the critical technologies um, are, are already going to be developed. Um, we'll have all those critical technologies this year. Um, and then as we look beyond LEO and look at more interplanetary um, applications, um, we would have that technology demonstrated. So we'd be going into those bigger, uh, more ambitious missions with some pedigree um, already behind us. Um, and you know, as we as we're trying to get to the moon, too, we're learning a lot. Um, the, the team's learning, learning a whole bunch, and um, that that uh, is great to be doing now and this early. So once we go in and look for more um, beyond Leo applications and missions. Um, we'd be coming in with some pedigree heritage at that point. Yeah. But so speaking of uh, going beyond Leo and going to other planets, I'm assuming Neutron is that rocket that you're planning to use that for. Can you go, for the listeners who might not have heard what Neutron is, A, you can Google it, but can you uh, give us like yeah. a quick quick overview of what Rocket Lab is trying to do with Neutron, their new rocket? Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, I guess in a summary, Neutron is the next new big shiny thing, right? Quite literally in, in some senses. Um, but it is a, a larger launch vehicle that we will be developing, uh, which we've already started um, across the business. Um, it is sort of targeting about eight tons to low Earth orbit. Um, and uh, initial flight plans uh, are from our Walt sites. Um, and it's really there to be a mega constellation builder. Um, so it's there to, to lift the, the next set of constellations that we're, we're seeing sort of come online in the 2024, 20, 25 and beyond timeframe, whether it's for commercial industry or, or the government. 
Um, so that's what Neutron is is being designed developed for. Um, right out of the gate, we're looking at reusability. We're, we're seeing this as a, a fleet um, type operation where um, we can reuse the vehicle multiple times, um, again, for the same reasons of bringing cost down, but also, again, uh, providing a high cadence or a highly reliable light ride to orbit. Um, and in terms of beyond LEO applications, yeah, I mean, Neutron's a great candidate as well. Um, there are so many things we can do with Electron right now. Um, Capstone's a great example for what you can do with a small rocket uh, to put small payloads. But Neutron just opens up that capability even further um, to take uh, much bigger assets, uh, much bigger satellites and, and probes and so on to, to distant planets. Um, so it feels like a natural evolution from where we started uh, to where we're going. And uh, yeah, we're quite excited to bring Neutron uh, out to market. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about, because we, we talked about the electric pumps earlier, and that's something you chose kind of based on the electron scale. How much of what you've done with electron do you think will be scalable to neutron? Because something like electric pumps may or may not be revisited, but other stuff mm. might be pretty easily transferable. So like if you had to give percentages, like what percent can be kind of scaled up from electron versus what has to be sort of redesigned from the ground up? Yeah, good question. I feel like maybe we're a bit too early to talk in metrics or percentages. Mm. But what I can say is um, some things scale really well um, with size. Uh, in fact, they don't scale at all. So, for example, a flight computer sitting on Electron um, will take a certain footprint. And that footprint does not need to be any bigger because it's a bigger rocket. Your GPS units, for example, take the same amount of room in a big rocket as it does on Electron. Um, you know, there might be some slightly small uh, units or there might be some miniaturization, but some electronics and avionics don't actually scale with the size of the vehicle. Um, the software takes the same amount of room on the ship as, uh, as it is for a bigger vehicle and a small vehicle. Uh, the same amount of controls and interfaces um, for some of the things like avionics. So avionics are a great example of things that don't actually scale with the size of the vehicle sure. as much, uh, whereas your engines are a very obvious one, uh, much bigger uh, thrust output, therefore, much bigger turbo machinery and, and so on to support. So there'll be some technologies that will need to be um, scaling quite significantly and, and invest a lot of development time into, whereas some we can just take across um, from Electron. And, and the biggest thing I think we take from Electron across is the experience of uh, building something that needs to go to orbit. Um, you know, the, in many ways, uh, when you look at, you know, something like an Electron or a much bigger vehicle, like a Falcon 9 even, you're sort of solving the same kind of problems. You need to move liquid oxygen into a tank. Um, they, you need to figure out all the systems. The number of valves in many cases are identical. It's just much bigger or much smaller. So macroscopically getting to orbit, there'll be a lot of problems that we'll run into um, that we can leverage experience from Electron, but there'll be a whole bunch of new things that will come with the scale of this vehicle and this venture that um, we would need to sort of approach from scratch, building on the experience from Electron. Um, but the having a team that's made it to orbit in record time is, I think, the biggest asset we've got here. And using that same team to then take Neutron from what it is as an idea right now to, to realization is, is uh, our biggest, I think, um, strategic win, if anything. Yeah, yeah I mean, when, yeah, in the VC world, it's always like the thing you hear time and time again is like you don't invest in a company for its idea. You invest, you invest in it for the people because the people are going to be the ones to take that idea into orbit. So yeah, yeah. I, I, it's a great point. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, specifically for Neutron, I know, or at least like online, there's been a lot of questions around the engines. 
mm-hmm. that are going to be on Neutron because the Rutherford engines that are on Electron won't be able to scale like in the same way. Has any work kind of been laid out or like any progress been made for that so far that you can talk about? Yeah, good question. I mean, all I can say at this point is we're, we're just straighting um, all options at the moment. Um, and, and yeah, we're kind of going in with with nothing really uh, off the table at this point. So we're just exploring. Bit early to say how we'll land with the with the, with the technology, but uh, yeah, we're exploring all options and it's heavily in trade. Sure. Is that something you're looking to do in-house at least, or, or are you even open to like buying other commercially available engines and such? Trading everything. We're trading okay. the in-house development programs through to what's available in the market. Um, it is cool. a very niche product um, to try and procure a rocket engine um, period, but uh, we'll have to, yeah, let the trade studies roll out and, and look at our sizing and that'll um, hopefully get us to a solution in short order. Cool. Based on what you were able to come up with with the uh, helicopter idea, I'm sure they'll be able to scale the rocket. <laughs> uh, so I should have tossed you a softball early, which was kind of about the advantage of, of small launch. And I, I think most of our listeners kind of understand the the value proposition for small launch versus ride share. And you've kind of dominated the small launch market. And so I think my initial skepticism with Neutron was why you're trying to push into a market that already has sort of an existing competitor in SpaceX. What is the the rationale there? And do you think it's just that there's so much going on in the future that there's enough space for two? Or do you think you have uh, like certain competitive advantages in the same way that Electron did over Falcon 9 for certain use cases? Yeah, sure. So I guess in the context, context of Neutron, we're seeing a, a good volume um, overall that could feed two or three players um, at least. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these assets that need to go up um, may also be in direct competition with products like Starlink uh, and so on. So, um, you know, there might be there might be use cases and, and, and customers that um, would want to see their assets go up as quickly as possible um, without having to wait for a ride share. Um, look at a mega constellation builder uh, that's dedicated to taking many, many satellites up there um, at the same time. And the other thing that, that differentiates Neutron from Electron is... Um, you know, Electron's got a small lift capability that's that's tailored for the smaller satellites and, and constellations that are built from smaller satellites. Uh, when we start looking at bigger sizes, um, it's kind of like an economies of scale that we're just trying to target uh, constellations now that have satellites probably 500, 600 kilograms per satellite. Um, and if they all need to go to the same plane, then something in the order of eight tons is is you know uh, about a good size is is what we've concluded five to eight tons in the medium class, so to speak. Um, at a given time, um, a vehicle much bigger would then be flying under capacity. Um, so we'd, there'd be a lot of lost revenue that's not realized at a given time either. So um, the medium class is where we're seeing um, somewhat of an optimal sizing right now with uh, with the future mega constellations that are needing to be built. So it's um, it's almost like what Electron is doing right now for our smaller constellations uh, with smaller satellites. Um, just just sort of that, but at a slightly bigger scale, um, just because the assets are also slightly bigger. Okay. So you see it as like what Electron did for kind of the CubeSat, like all these CubeSats are going to Leo. It's the same thing. But now that the, the satellites are on the order of, you know, 50 kilograms or, you know, a couple hundred kilograms, it's, it's scaling for that same idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chad, do you want to talk a little bit about like your SPAC questions that I probably don't understand. And maybe I would love to, how much can you answer? Or or I'll just go ask them if you can't. 
yeah, yeah, not a whole lot more, but I mean, wind you far away and we'll, we'll uh, see yeah, what I can sure. answer. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, Rocket Lab is uh, going public. There will be a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, I think, officially for anyone who cares. Um, but so what were some of the main drivers behind Rocket Lab wanting to go public? Yeah, uh, I think one of the biggest ones is uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a means of being able to scale at a much higher rate than we have to date with uh, just purely VC funded um, efforts so far. Um, and I think, you know, you, you would have heard Peter also being, being quoted out, but it, it, it essentially gives us a public currency. It's a currency that's uh, much higher that we can do a lot, lot more with um, like strategic acquisitions. And then also uh, we've talked about Neutron a lot, but develop something as big as Neutron um, is made possible with the funds that we see going through this route um, than anything else. So it's really to do a whole lot more um, in, in, in the time we have um, and also being able to accelerate our growth is what um, this route to go public um, is, is giving us. Cool. And I know like as a publicly traded company, then you have like the public as investors and they sometimes have differing ideas of what a company should be doing than what necessarily Rocket Lab does and what their kind of internal company culture is. Do you anticipate there being any kind of roadblocks or issues or like needing a change within Rocket Lab to be a public company? Like you might not be able to do as many innovative things or be able to take less risks or like anything kind of along that line. Yeah, it's a fair question to ask. And I think, um, I, I guess that's the, uh, that that's sort of what comes with going public, uh, but I don't see, uh, you know, any, any reason or, any um, risks or threats uh, on that regard um, for the way we do business. Um, you know, ultimately, our investors would, are investing in us and will be investing in us uh, to keep doing what we're doing, uh, which is uh, delivering uh, the technology that we do and enabling access to space and doing a whole bunch more in space. So um, with that sort of mandate, um, I don't see a whole lot of that really changing um, between what we do now and, and what we will be doing, just that we'll have um, a whole whole more um, investment behind us to get, get stuff done. Sure. Yeah. And even like I mentioned earlier, like there is very strong public opinion of rocket lab and very high hold you guys in like a very high regard. So that definitely makes sense on our side, but I just wanted to hear you confirm that too. Yeah. Yeah. I think Virgin Galactic did a good job of illustrating the public demand for space companies for sure. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask about was, the well actually you know i'll let chad ask chad why don't you ask the naming question first because i think that's a really good one yes <laughs> who comes up with the names for the rocket lab launches because they're entertaining <laughs> like they're always so funny like some of my favorites so there's like another one leaves the crust was the name of a mission it's yep. like pixar didn't happen other ones who comes up with that good question so we um we actually run an internal poll and we have a very talented comms team um that uh, that, that do what they do best but um, it, it's, a, it's a mixture. We have you know, input from our customers. If, if you're dedicated, if you buy a dedicated launch vehicle, you do have some, night, some rights in sort of naming what the mission is. So it's a mixture of that and it's a mixture of our, our staff as well. We run some internal polls to get um, names for um, missions and sort of the best one wins. But it doesn't seem like we're running out of any good ones. Uh, they keep, keep getting better. 
No, definitely. Yeah, so is it a requirement for Rocket Lab employees to have a decent sense of humor so that you can keep naming the rocket launch as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think that's how I learned my job. But uh, bad jokes. But uh, the 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 uh, I think it just puts an edge, or at least it's nice to have fun with some things. Um, it, it does not. All these names don't have to be ultra serious in a very ultra serious business. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it it uh, just adds a bit of a light touch to to what we're doing, and might as well have fun with it while you can. Definitely, sure. So one more kind of Rocket Lab related question, and then we'll do a couple on advice. I well, Chad, you can add one more, and if you want. But my kind of last one was, what are you looking forward to for your position moving forward? Like, what has you excited for like the future of your work? Yeah, I think for me, Neutron's uh, taken a pretty key role, um, specifically in seeing that come to rea you know, fruition and and doing something again from clean sheet. Uh, it, it for me takes me back to how we developed Electron, where again, right. um, nothing uh, nothing was off bounds or off limits, and could really uh, look at building a product from scratch. Um, so that that's quite exciting. Um, that's it's going to take an enormous effort. Um, and it's going to be incredibly challenging, but I expect um, that, that we'll, we'll get onto the flip side and, and look back and be proud of what we achieved. So that's uh, definitely getting a lot of my interest. And also, as we sort of you know venture out with Electron right now to our interplanetary missions, um, there's a lot there that we're doing that's just new. Um, it's, it's beyond what we've been doing to date. So uh, just constantly pushing the boundaries, really, is, is what keeps me interested. And... Um, gives me an opportunity to keep learning as well. And as long as that doesn't stop them, I'm, I'm pretty good. Sweet. And so Chad, do you have anything else Rocket Lab before we do advice? No, go for it. I'd love to hear the advice. Okay. So yeah, we do a couple advice questions since it's a lot of young people interested in space. Uh, one of the first ones is just things you wish you had known. So as you know, either an engineering student in college, university, or, you know, just coming onto the job, what are some just fundamental things you wish you had known earlier or some lessons you learned that would have been nice to know when you were a little younger? Yeah, um, I've got to think about this one, but I think if I had to look back at university and, and getting out of school, um, what was that like? I think for me, if I, I probably wouldn't have, you know, didn't really need to sweat the small stuff, I think is, is the biggest thing I'd probably pass on. Um, I'd also say that, I wish I'd realized earlier that some of the practical real world experience, which kind of makes sense now, um, trumps any GPA or grade, probably the worst thing to say to a number of academics, but um, uh, prioritizing um, and, and, and making sure that uh, you go out there and, and get real world experience, solve real problems um, is, is really what, um, what, you know, ideally, uh, should be the focus and and not really look into your gpas and grades they're just numbers at the end of the day and really will never define uh, uh it's not a really meaningful metric for success in my view anyway um i think and getting out there and, and doing it really is so that's one thing i maybe pass on or i would tell myself as i was trying to get through university and school yeah that's surprisingly common and I keep waiting for our lawsuit from someone that like, <laughs> because all they hear is all these leaders from the space industry say, don't worry, focus on your projects. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, stay in school. Uh, and yeah. I think stay in school. And I think the big thing is uh, a lot of what degrees, I guess, maybe taught me was uh, the ability to teach myself is the ability to learn new things. Not so much Thank what you actually learn. Um, a lot of it gets outdated very quickly too. So you got to get comfortable with that. But I think, 
the, the big takeaway is um, figure out the art of learning and, and keep doing that. Yeah, that's great. Chad, you want to ask one as well? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so specifically for the space industry and like getting into kind of the launch vehicle companies and some of the other budding space industries, do you have any recommendations for something they might like be looking at or like something they should be trying to do to help get them into these companies? Yeah, sure. I think maybe ties back to, um, you know, getting that hands-on experience. Um, I, I think uh, getting the experience with challenging complex engineering problems is, is really key. Um, it does not have to be in space, and, and sometimes you should be trading uh, an opportunity in an aerospace company versus something that's not in an aerospace company but provides you with that engineering challenge is probably more valuable. Um, so maybe not get too fixated on the organization itself, but the work that you're doing, I think, is is more important. Um, and, you know, having a rocket background is obviously very useful, um, goes without saying, but it does not have to be the only way to get into a launch vehicle um, or a launch business um, and, and a lot of us at Rocket Lab didn't come in from previous experiences on 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 launch vehicles or anything similar um, and, and in many ways that allowed us to innovate a little more freely without any predetermined biases or, or ways of thinking so um, yeah really what I could maybe summarize it as one is work on complex challenging problems and, and conquer them and that that experience is worth a lot. All right. We might be asking the same question over and over, but this is like the one that we always ask every guest. So if you, if you don't have anything else, that's understandable because you've kind of already hit it out of the park. But uh, what is the general advice you have for young people who are interested in space? You know, there's everyone that listens to this is really excited about the prospects of the industry over the next decades, I would say years, but probably de years and decades. What is, you know, what's got you excited and what is your just general advice to young people? Yeah, uh, good question. I think um, when I think about space as a whole or as a domain, um, it's big. It's massive, right? Space is big. I guess that's a tagline in itself. Hmm. But I think with that comes in the opportunities that lie within uh, space in this domain. I think the opportunities and the value streams in space we're yet to fully even realize. Um, you know, every year that goes by, we're doing more things on orbit. Um, we're doing more things going to distant planets. Um, we're seeing technologies like Starship. Um, and and uh, things that I probably didn't even imagine I'd be seeing just a few years ago um, in in sort of coming to fruition. So I think um, as space sort of grows, there's going to be a lot of opportunities, and I think uh, having an open mind to what these opportunities are is going to be quite important. Um, and you know, as we open access and as our platforms on orbit and beyond become more and more capable, the science we'll be doing is going to be more and more. Um, interesting and also uh, in many ways um, where yet to, you know, there's a, there's a lot of you don't know what you don't know um, in this domain. And I think anyone in this industry should should have that open mind to, to look at all the opportunities uh, from all angles, really. Um, they're, they're the obvious things with rockets and spacecraft, but there's a lot more to that as well um, with the various communication satellites coming up, um, the various optics, the synthetic radars. Um, there's just so much new stuff happening in this domain that it's it's just hard to be you know uh, to sit still and, and just focus on on some of the more obvious things so i think having an open mind uh to, to look at where you can contribute in this domain uh, is going to be key it's never going to be obvious at first as well and i think i'd just say to stay hungry and, and not stop learning um is going to be um, fundamentally 
the best advice I could pass on in, in an area that's uh, constantly growing and, and um, expanding as the rate it is right now. Awesome. So a couple things to wrap up then. First, is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about? Is there anything we missed? I think we no, got a thank pretty you. Topic. got a pretty good, pretty good yeah. set of questions there. Sweet. Um, and then one of the last things is, do you have either personal social media channels where you do space stuff or just Rocket Lab's general social media so people know where they can find you and follow the company as well? Yeah, I don't personally. I probably probably yeah, don't do a great job at social media. Um, I, I am on LinkedIn. I, I use that every now and then to post stuff um, so people can feel free to reach out there um, and exchange ideas or collaborate. Uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, and then, yeah, follow Rocket Lab on Twitter. Um, you know, we're constantly tweeting about uh, what's going on in, in our news. Um, I guess it's it's a great news outlet for for what it is we do. Um, and that would be probably it. That'd be the best ways. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it yet, go on YouTube. You get a chance to watch Peter Beck eat his own hat in the fairing cover, which is pretty funny. Um, so I think we'll probably close it up with that. Thank you, Sean, for joining us. Thank you, Chad, for co-hosting. Uh, on behalf of everyone at SEDScast, thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.